Please stand with me as I read from Matthew 8, beginning in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And when they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. You may be seated. All right, if you have your Bibles, you can open them or turn them on to Matthew chapter 8. We're actually going to be finishing this chapter uh, today. And we have to remember when we, when we jump into any passage, what is it that the author's trying to communicate? Because you know, we heard John say that all the books in the world at that time, they would not be able to, to contain all the things that Jesus did. So why is Matthew choosing these stories at this time? And if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that, that Matthew's trying to communicate something about Jesus's authority. He said at the end of chapter 7 that he taught as one who has authority. And then he started giving us proof in chapter 8 of that authority where we saw Jesus healing many different physical ailments. And Matthew doesn't stop there. Now he's showing us that, that Jesus not only has authority over the physical things in this universe, he has authority over the natural things and even the spiritual things. And the disciples, they, they ask a hugely important question in our passage that really aids Matthew in his mission to communicate something about Jesus' authority. They look at each other and they say, what kind of a man is this? What kind of a man is this who can do all these things that we're seeing him do? And that's the question that Matthew wants to answer. My, uh, my five-year-old has this trick that he does, this magic trick, where he takes an object and then he puts it behind his back and he slips it into his pants and then he presents his hands out where the object has magically disappeared. And before he does this trick, he always says the same thing, prepare to be amazed. <laughs> and he does this trick and then we're all showing our amazement All of us, except my 10-year-old, who's very matter-of-fact, he looks at us and he says, you realize it's just in the back of his pants. (laughs) And I think think this kind of gets us somewhere in the realm of what Matthew is wanting to do in this text. I think Matthew is wanting to say something like, prepare to be amazed at what you're going to see. 
only he actually has something amazing to offer. But to our more modern or even postmodern minds, you know, we look at this and we react more like my matter-of-fact 10-year-old. We look at it and think, can, can this really be true? I mean, this doesn't, I don't see how this is scientifically possible. You know, people, they recorded these events well before they had all the knowledge that we have today to be able to understand what was happening around them. And I think it's worth saying and mentioning that we are, as a people, I think harder to impress than any, any type of person that has ever lived before. And I think that's mainly due to all the technological advancements that we've seen in the course of our lifetime. And I, I'm pro-technological advancement. I'm really excited about what science is doing. I'm very thankful to be able to live in a time where we, we can cure hundreds of, of ailments and diseases that probably would have killed us 100 years ago. So I'm deeply thankful. But we have to realize that it, these advancements do make it harder for us to be amazed, I think, the way that Matthew wants us to be amazed. Now, I was thinking this week, my great-grandmother, she, when she was young, she, or the main mode of transportation was horse-drawn carriages. Uh, my wife's grandmother, who just died last year, when she was young, she did not have running water or electricity. And both of these women lived to see a day when a man would be put on the moon. I mean, that, that's unbelievable technological advancement in one lifetime. And now I have devices in my hand that are far superior to all the technology that we use to get those men on the moon. And again, praise God that we have all these things, but we have to see that it makes us harder than ever to be impressed. But I want us to hear the disciples ask this question. What kind of a man is this? And I want us to hear Matthew say, prepare to be amazed. So what is it that Matthew wants to tell us about the kind of person that Jesus is? First, he wants to show us that he does have authority over nature. These are verses 23 through 27. So as best I can tell, the crowds have gathered. They've become so large that it seems like the only way that Jesus can get out of them is is to get in a boat and cross the sea. And we know that this body of water, it was about 13 miles long. It's about eight miles wide. And I learned this week that because of the the geographical terrain on the west side you have these mountains and then the actual surface of of the sea is almost 700 feet below sea level so it's even to this day it's not uncommon for winds to come off those western mountains and turn a, a really calm sea into a very violent one so something like that happened here These winds came down, the sea goes from calm to violent to the point where they're worrying for their very lives and they rush to Jesus who's asleep. They wake him up and then Jesus rebukes the disciples for their little faith and then he rebukes the storm and causes the seas to go calm again. And I love that Jesus is sleeping when the storm came because you have such a picture here of the humanity and the the deity of Jesus his body is worn out he has been healing and teaching for so long he he can't help but fall asleep and it is such a deep sleep that he's not even woken up by the waves but then we see his deity when he just tells the storm to stop and it stops and this wasn't the first time in Jesus ministry that he that he altered the laws of nature and physics. But I think it's a really important one for the disciples and specifically for Matthew because there's something about a storm in ancient times that represented one of the greatest kinds of destruction possible. 
And again, in our society, I think we can lose a little bit of the awe uh, that a storm should should provide because I mean in, in that day they didn't know when a storm was going to come they, they weren't able to anticipate it their, their structures were such that in a few hours it could literally decimate a town we on the other hand we know when a storm's coming we live in better structures we can prepare we can flee I, I remember really well the first time I felt like I got a sense of awe in a storm a few months after Hurricane Andrew passed through South Florida my family was driving through South Florida And I remember looking around and there were no more trees, like anywhere. You could not find trees. That was the first time I I was hit by the the awe of of these these storms. But it hasn't been totally lost on us because we still retain phrases in our language like the storms of life that show that we understand something about the, the destruction of these storms and the symbolism. And when these kind of storms of life come to us, how often are we at least thinking, if not saying, God, I feel like you're asleep right now. I feel like you're sleeping. I'm hurting and I, don't, I can't see you do anything. I'm scared. And it just feels like you're sleeping right now. And this is exactly the kind of sentiment that the disciples are communicating because they go to him and they ask him, do you even care that we will perish? You're sleeping And how does he respond? Why are you afraid? So there's something fundamentally different between Jesus' perspective or his vantage point and the disciples. And and we need to understand that because we are going to have to understand that we have the same deficiency in perspective in our lives. I heard Tim Keller uh, some time ago, he he observed, you know, there's a reason that at a football game, there's coaches way up high looking down. Because often those of us closest to the action have the worst vantage point. So a coach on the sideline can wonder, why are they running through our defense the way that they are? And the coach up top can say, well, it's simple. I can see your linebackers are, are lining up way too deep. So there's something going on in the difference between our vantage point that, doesn't help, that, that causes us to be afraid. Maybe some of you had the experience where you're trying to give a child medicine that that child needs and because of the taste of it, they will resist it with every ounce of effort they have. They respond as if you're trying to force feed arsenic into their system and they're resisting it because of the taste. Their their vantage point is messed up. Their, Their perspective is skewed. They don't understand that they're resisting the very thing that they need the most. So what is wrong with the disciples' perspective and by connection all of ours? where we naturally would not understand these storms of life and be tempted to look at God and say, are you sleeping? And so I think at least three things would be true of our perspective. First, we need to understand that we're not God. We're not God. We can't begin to understand or appreciate the billions and trillions of aspects to the perplexity of this world and the ways that he's using all of it for his glory and our good. We're not God and we're never gonna see it. Secondly, Our perspective is off because we live in a fallen world. We should not be surprised when difficult things happen. If if there's any promise of living in this world, it's that difficult things will happen. (laughs) This is a fallen world that will promise pain and grief until Jesus comes back and fixes all of it. And then thirdly, our perspective is off when we don't realize that Jesus came and dealt with the biggest storm we will ever have to face and that is the very wrath of God that we merit and is coming toward us. 
Because Jesus comes and he takes on that wrath so that we can be assured the smooth seas of an eternal relationship and deep, meaningful relationship with the God who created us. When we understand that Jesus dealt with that storm, that fundamentally shifts our perspective on all the other storms that are coming in life. Jesus did not come to make this life easier. He came to give this life meaning. And I think that's what he meant when, when he said, or why he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus has authority over the natural realm. He has authority even over storms, both literal and figurative. And then next in this passage, we see that he has authority even over the demons. These are verses 28 through 34. Yeah, I said in the beginning how a modern reader looks at some of these, these miraculous stories. And I think this, this one, the demons, would be particularly hard. You know? I mean, they, people can think, yes, okay, the storm, fine. Maybe he just got lucky. But when we start talking about demons, Jim, I'm just out. It's just too much for me. And I, I think it's a little interesting. When I talk to my, uh, my agnostic friends, my postmodern friends, they most of them don't have a problem with the idea of a God. Most of them don't even, as much as we wrestle with truth, most of them don't have a problem with good and evil either. And, and a lot of them don't even have a problem with angels. But when you get to a demon, that's just where we, we hit pause, which I, I find that, that logic somewhat inconsistent. But clearly, Jesus and Matthew are both teaching that demons are a real thing. And they run into two demon-possessed men. So let's set the stage a little bit. We see that he went to the other side to a country called Gadarenes. Gadarenes. And this is, it's really important when any of these authors, and the Gospels especially, when they include the location of a place, they're doing it for a reason. And I think the reason on this one is because Gadarenes was not a Jewish town. You know, they never would have had, no Jewish village would have had herds of pigs there. So this is Jesus' first venture into the Gentile world. Actually, everything in this, in, this, in this story here screams not Jewish or unclean. So not only do, do you have pigs here, you have a demon-possessed man, you, who, men who are living among the physically dead in a tomb. So any, any good Jew at the time would have been repulsed at every, every aspect of the setting of where Jesus is. And so much about this setting, it foreshadows Jesus's ministry. (laughs) Because Jesus didn't come just to be the king of Israel and to restore glory to Israel. He came to be the king of the world, to save the world. But what was it that he came to save us from? We have to understand this if we're really to understand the main question in this passage. What kind of a man is this? And to answer that, we're going to have to see that we have a lot more in common with these demon-possessed men than we're probably comfortable admitting. These men, we know that they were demon-possessed, they were naked, they were homeless, living in a tomb. By all accounts, they were not in their right mind. They could not think straight. They could not see Jesus for who he is. Does this not describe every single human being before the Holy Spirit engages and interacts with us? All of us are are in this kind of setting before the Holy Spirit, by his grace, comes and opens up our hearts and our eyes. This is how Paul describes our state, all of us, before the intervention of the Holy Spirit. This is Ephesians 2. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind outside of the grace of God coming into our lives. We, we are naked, we are homeless, we are incompetent to spiritual things because we're sinful. And I've said this before, but I think if we go out into Orlando and we do some sort of poll and ask people, what is, ten, what is sin? We're gonna get answers like lying, cheating, killing, stealing, but that's not sin. Our sin isn't the bad decisions that we make. Our sin is the underlying disease that makes us not want to make good decisions. We have this underlying disease that makes us not want Jesus to be king of our lives. And it affects every aspect of our being. So we have this doctrine called total depravity. I was realizing this, is, this has been a big Sunday. We had effectual calling, we had predestination, we're now in total depravity. But total depravity is a term that we've created because it means that sin has so, it, it's an understanding of the Bible saying that sin has so ravaged all of our faculties that we don't even have the ability to see Jesus as our answer. And it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. All of us in this room could get worse but it means that every aspect of our being has been so corrupted by sin that not only do we choose to not make Jesus king of our lives we are so far gone that outside of God's grace and the Holy Spirit coming into our lives we can't even see that that's our problem we're so much like these demons these demon possessed men excuse me until Jesus comes in If anyone believes in Jesus Christ, it isn't because we are more spiritual. It isn't because we're more moral. It isn't because we came from a better home. It's because God, by his grace, has opened our eyes. He has taken us from naked and clothed us in righteousness. He has taken us from homeless and he has brought us into the kingdom of light. He has given us a right mind by which we can look and choose to follow Jesus Christ and understand that he is our only hope. These demon-possessed men, they represent all of us before Jesus came and pursued his far-off people to clothe them and heal them, give them a new mind and a new kingdom. He doesn't do it because he loves us. He doesn't do it because we merit it. He does it because he loves us. And he doesn't love some idea of a future you without sin. He loves you where you are now. This is why Jesus does this. This is why he pursues us. And he will not stop until all of his people are his. We actually don't know a lot about demons. Uh, we, We can see in this passage that they seem to understand there is this final judgment that's coming. Uh, It seems like they really do hate the disembodied state. They want to be in a body of some sort, which is, I guess, why they say, all right, Jesus, we know you have power over us, but when you cast us out, will you at least let us go into those pigs? Which he does, and then all the pigs run off the cliff and into the sea, and they die. To which I know you animal lovers are out here, you're thinking, how could Jesus do this to some some innocent pigs? And there might be some animal haters out there nudging your your spouse saying, I told you our cat is possessed. It's in the Bible. 
need to get rid of it. We aren't told why Jesus does this, but I think the simplest understanding is simply that that it was more proof that Matthew could offer that Jesus did have authority over this realm. He has this authority and you can see it. He cast out the demons. These men came to their right minds and all of a sudden, just as had been predicted, the pigs go crazy. So I just, I think it's one more proof of Jesus is who he says he is. But there's a last thing that's really interesting to me because these demons, they knew a lot. So they, they not only understood that Jesus has authority over our physical afflictions, over the natural world, and over the spiritual world. They knew something that the disciples don't even confess until eight chapters from now. They knew that Jesus was the very Son of God. Verse 29. And behold, they cried out, the demon, the demon-possessed men, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? And I have to imagine Matthew is just, just, excited to be able to to put this detail in here and while it's not the first time that the son of Jesus the son of God is mentioned uh, it's mentioned four times I think two really kind of implicitly saying that Jesus uh, would might be the son of God when Satan asks him if you're the son of God you can do do this but this is the first time that someone outright comes and says you are the son of God which is hugely important because this, when we ask what kind of a man is this, we're able to see, well, this makes sense that he can do all these things because his authority comes from the fact that he is the very son of God. So what does it mean when Matthew says that Jesus is the son of God? It means that Jesus is God. I mean, that's what ultimately this means. Jesus is God. And it's all over our New Testaments. Paul says to the Colossians, for in him, Jesus, the wholeness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. To the Philippians, Paul says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And the author of Hebrews says this about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And then of course, John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. All right, we have to do a little heavy lifting here just for a moment because it's really important that we understand what this term son of God really means, how this turns into God himself because it's been very misunderstood over the course of, of the church. Jesus is not only human. You know, he isn't even like this great angel who decided to take on flesh. He is truly man and truly God. And this is the reason that we use begotten, the only begotten son. We don't say created or made, we say begotten. Uh, John Piper, I think, helpfully says, when a father makes something, he makes it different than himself. When a father begets something, it is the imprint of the nature of the father. So here's how C.S. Lewis describes it. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make or create, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. And man makes a wireless set or a computer in today's words. 
So again, I'm still using Piper language here. When we say that Jesus is the son of God, we mean that God has begotten his son, his very divine nature, nothing less from all of eternity. And so th- this word beget, it is the best way that we can communicate who Jesus is and hold on to two very important truths. So the first truth is that God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Father. And they are distinct persons who can communicate and, and relate among themselves. So we want to hold that in one hand. But at the, on the other hand, we need to acknowledge that the Father and the Son are one God. One God, not two, one essence, one divine nature, perfectly equal in power and glory. From eternity without beginning or end, the Father has always had a perfect image of himself, a divine reflection, a divine radiance equal to himself, namely the Son. And so this is really important to understand because in this term, Son of God, we understand where all this authority comes from. All right, heavy lifting done. Now, we get to see a God who would pursue us and love us to want to bring us into his kingdom, lavish us with all these blessings that we don't deserve. All we have to do is respond in faith. And so some of you, maybe today is the day that you respond in faith to King Jesus for the very first time. Today can be the day that you go from naked to clothed in his righteousness. Today can be the day that you go from spiritually homeless to thriving in the kingdom of light. And for all of us, when we choose to make Jesus our king, the call of this passage is to continue to use the faith that we have. And to see this, we're gonna need to go back to the boat for a second. All right, so when the disciples are scared of the storm and they woke Jesus up, what does Jesus say? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. He's not saying, oh, you of no faith. They had enough faith to get in the boat. He's rebuking them not for not having enough faith. He's rebuking them for not using the faith that they have, for not applying the knowledge of who Jesus is in this particularly scary time. The, uh, the old British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's, he says this. Jesus does not say, you don't have any faith. He says, where is your faith? He says, get it out. Why don't you have it? He doesn't say, you don't have it. He says, you have it, but you're not using it. Where is it? It should be used at this time. When, when we go to a nice restaurant or... Uh, or somebody's house when our, with our little ones will say, get your manners out of your pockets. Let's go, let's go ahead and get your manners out. It doesn't mean that they don't have manners. We're saying, now's the time to use them, please. What Jesus is saying is our faith isn't automatic. We, we, the Christian life is growing in our relationship with Jesus and understanding more deeply who Jesus is. And the call to maturity is to apply what we know about Jesus, about his character, about his love for us, his commitment to us. Apply that in every storm of life as it comes. As the disciples, they, they should have known. But when they go to Jesus, they question first his ability. Can you even calm the storm? And they should, have, they should have known Psalm 89. I mean, it, it's really clear. You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still, you still them. So they question his ability, but worse than that, they question his love for them, his affection and his compassion. They said, do you not care that we're going to perish? And if we're all honest, 
Are there places in our hearts, in our lives, where we're either thinking or saying, Master, do you care? Do you care about me right now? Because it doesn't feel like it. I'm scared, I'm hurt. And the answer is yes. Jesus cared so much that he gave his very life for us. So why would he not care for us now? Why would he not take care of us now? He dealt with the big storm. He'll deal with the little ones. He will get us through to to a place where there will be no more storms. There will be no more hurt. There will be no more strife. There will be no more fear. Are we applying what we know about the character of Jesus Christ in all the scary and difficult and confusing times in our lives? So what kind of man is this? Jesus is the very son of God with all the authority on heaven and earth who loves us and pursues us and is bringing us into a new kingdom, a new world, a new heaven, a new earth where we can exist with him and commune with him forever. And some people are going to be threatened by that claim like the herdsmen who ran away in, in fear. Some people are gonna get angry about that claim, like the, the people in the city who came and said, Jesus, you leave this place. But then there are those like the disciples who will stand in awe. What kind of a man is this? That's my prayer for us, that we will be like the disciples, that we will feel this awe of who Jesus is. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you would give us these accounts of your character and the person of Jesus Christ. We don't claim to understand every single nuance, but what you have given us is clear. That in Jesus Christ, we have hope for our sin and we see your love manifested for us in the most significant way we could possibly imagine. So God, we pray today that, that this all would sink inside of us, that, that when Matthew says prepared to be amazed, that we would be amazed, that we would be amazed at who Jesus is and that he even cares for us and that that, that all would sink inside of us and change us, that we would more accurately represent who you are to the world and more vigorously pursue your kingdom growing in our lives and through our lives. So we thank you for this. We ask you for these things by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.